ask you a question. Do you think people ever really change? Yeah, I don't think anybody does. I mean, people don't want to admit it, but it's like we just, we have these innate set points, uh -huh. you know, and it's like nothing much that happens to us changes our disposition. What if this is as good as it gets? Oh. People don't change. People don't really change, do they? No, they, uh, they can. I can. And, um, you... Ah, uh, change is good. Yeah, but it's not easy. I don't know. Do people really change? <laughs> I think they do. Yeah, but I mean, they still stay who they are, pretty much. I think we change all the time. I think we stay the same, but grow, I guess, a little bit. I think if you're growing, then you're changing. But, I mean, we're changing from who we are, which we always stay as. People don't change. For example, I'm going to keep repeating. People don't change. Nope. Wrong again. <laughs> you see, he lives in you. Have we got your attention? Do you ever think about it? I mean, those 75 seconds encapsulate a whole field of thought across centuries among philosophers, sociologists, psychologists. Do you really ever change? Is it possible? And to whatever extent you can or did, is that more imaginary? Or did the needle move about this much? And like, you thought, I'm all chained. Like, no, you're not. That's a conversation. Now, that's in film. And that doesn't mean it's any less worthy of consideration, but let me, let me bring it into a, a, a really real-life situation. Go with me, if you will, a, a little north into the west, to um, outside of Columbus, Ohio, there's a correctional facility in Marion, Ohio. The Marion Correctional Facility, really creative way of naming a correctional facility. About 10 years ago, uh, somebody had the idea, what, what if you went into a correctional facility with people who had been incarcerated for some really heinous crimes, and you introduced to them discussions about beauty and about art and dance. What if you gave them a forum to learn what it meant to dance and, and, and even to prepare and to perform dance numbers for your colleagues, your colleagues, they're um, in the correctional facility, <laughs> these are my colleagues, um, we're having a committee meeting right now, um, what would it be like? What, what effect would it have? And it became a thing. And there's actually a whole field of study in which learning how to dance provides this space in which you begin to process what you did and maybe what it was done to you that you then decided, I'm going to do this. And it's a whole thing. And so TEDx, you know, that organization, they, they go into Marion Correctional Facility every year and they do these talks and they do these presentations. And in 2015, they did this whole performance where all, where several of the, of the inmates, they prepared dance works. And so there's, there's scenes from that performance. And the only reason I know about it is because this moment in 2015 was showcased in an, an episode of the podcast Invisibilia. You ever listened to Invisibilia? I, I hadn't listened to it since 2016. But there it was. And that podcast was devoted not simply to showcasing what's going on in Marion, but to a much larger question about, do we ever change? It was entitled, The Personality Myth. Is our personality so fixed 
that it, you know, again, there's this little wiggle room, or can it be transformed? That's a question worth asking. If you are a Christian, then you believe that you have been changed in terms of status before the Lord. What you once were, what you now are, you have now been reconciled to God through the work of Jesus. Your status with God has changed, and therefore your future with God has changed. That's the gospel, and you've been hearing us talk about that in this letter of Ephesians, and hopefully a lot longer before that too. But at the same time, we're talking about those things that are kind of outside of you. If you're a Christian, you also believe that change occurs within. And that's why we've been listening to the letter that Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. The first half we've said outlines for us what we think is kind of the song of the gospel, the inward music that's meant to work its way deep into the way you think. And the second half of the letter is the dance. What is that life, that movement, that whole way of thinking and acting that is motivated by this inward music of the gospel? That's the song and the dance of the gospel. Well, this morning we're talking about the dance because we're in the second half of the letter But what we're going to learn from this passage is that the dance is, if you will, a state of mind, a habit of thinking, a way of thinking. And the way the passage breaks up is into two parts, the mind you left behind and the mind you're meant to find. The rhyme is with no extra charge. The mind you left behind and the mind you're meant to find. That's the dance, and we have to understand how that works in order to figure out what does it mean to dance according to that melody rather than the tune we once danced to. So maybe we can rescue this passage and those words from a metaphor and get down into brass tacks about what it means to live like this. So if you will, we're going to start in Ephesians 4, if you don't mind standing, to focus your attention We're in chapter 4, and we're starting in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him, were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. So if you're listening closely there, towards the end of the passage, you hear Paul kind of break up the way our thinking should um, materialize into to two, two eras of a life in Jesus. An old self and a new self. And each of those selves, the old self and the new self, are tied to a state of mind, habit of mind, a way of thinking. 
you don't realize the extent to which everything that you've done today is shaped by certain patterns of the way you think that you're really not aware of in the moment unless you step back and go, hmm. Well, that's what we're doing today. We're stepping back and going, hmm. That old self, he ascribes to something called a futility of mind. The new self, he ascribes to this something about being renewed in the inner spirit, the spirit of your inner mind. That's what we want to flesh out. What is the futility of mind he's talking about? What does it mean to be renewed in mind? And so he puts it out here. Let's start with that first part about futility in verse 1. Or verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Do a little sidebar here. It's calling out Gentiles and in our day, uh, you might go, is he being a racist? He's a Jew, and he's saying that all Gentiles are just stuck in futility of mind. Is that what he's saying? That if you're a Gentile, then you're mindless, you're stupid, you're full of it. Relax. We, we take this letter in chunks, but we have to remember it in, whole, in its entirety. He does speak of Gentiles because he's talking primarily to Gentiles. He's talking to Gentiles that come from within a culture of thinking. And you all need to realize, I need to remember, that much of what shapes my mind is the culture in which I find myself. The world you live in, the atmosphere that you breathe, the thinking that's all around you, if you're not, if you're not cognizant of how a culture works, you don't realize that some of your thoughts are shaped by things that you're not even aware of, that you let into the house and you didn't know was there. But what Paul is saying here is that, look, the Gentiles that he's talking to have come from a culture that has a particular ways of thinking. And if you remember back in chapter 2, he does say, this is the way the Gentiles were, but he says, you know what, it's we who are all hostile in mind. And if you know what Paul says in Romans chapter 2 about there are Gentiles out there, he's, he's straight up, he says that they don't have the law of God that was given to Israel, but they act as if they do. There's something about their conscience, there's something about their appreciation of the idea of virtue that's there, even though they were never told, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So, no, he's not, he's not dunking on Gentiles here, but he is making the Gentiles that he's speaking to aware that you need to realize you've come out of a culture that is full of a futility of mind. Now, what is this futility? Remember during Advent, we, yeah. I'm sure you do. We, we looked at Romans chapter 8, where, where Paul there says that the Lord subjected a creation to futility. And the original word there is the same Greek translation of a word from Ecclesiastes, where the Ecclesiastes preacher says, more than any other word in the entire book, vanity. Vanity of vanities. Go after anything that you will, but you realize it will slip through your fingers. It doesn't last it can't hold up. You will have to let it go. Paul is saying that the futility of mind is like a mind imprisoned. That in every direction you follow it, in every direction that it seems to hold promise in the way you follow it, you will always be met with a dead end. It is a road to nowhere in some point. 
And there he begins to then outline what does this futility of mind look like? He says, first of all, it, it's spoken of in terms of darkness. He says that they're darkened in their understanding. They have a dim view of things. It is, you ever been in a, in a poorly lit room or where the lights are out? What, what do you do? You, even your eyes at some point have to uh, adapt, but even then, you're still feeling your way in the dark and you stumble. You can't see all that you need to see, and in that sense, you're a danger to yourself and probably to others. To be, have a futility of mind is to have a certain darkness of understanding. And let me, let me try to bring a, a picture of that. 340 years before Paul wrote these words, there was this philosopher dude named Plato. Perhaps you've heard of him. And he had this allegory, this analogy called the cave. Here's a wonderful illustration of it. Plato would say that we all begin this life like a bunch of prisoners, those are prisoners over there on the left, who are chained to a fence, and they are chained facing in one direction only. They're chained facing a wall. Now there is light behind them, and that light is throwing up shadows about what is there behind them. And those shadows they see on the wall, but that's all they can see because their heads are in that direction only. They can't really see around them, behind them, because that's just the way they are. All they can see are shadows. And those shadows, while a hint, a suggestion of what is, it's darkened. All they can see are shadows. And from Plato's point of view and the philosophers that started with him and, and every, henceforth, that it is through philosophy and the light of reason that your chains break free. And then finally, you can see him. I'm dancing here, out here in the sunlight with the tree and the sun and half naked. And there I am. Now I can finally see reality that philosophy and reason are my way to be left and brought out of the cave. Paul is not borrowing a thought from Plato, but he is finding a thought that has a resonance there. That the futility of mind is as if to be chained in a cave and you can only see the shadows of all things. But unlike what Plato was saying, Paul is saying that that darkness of understanding not only are you darkened your understanding, you prefer it. That the darkness of understanding is downstream of what he says is the hardness of heart. You ever been to a, a desert, the Mojave, whatever it might be? You, you look at the ground, it's been arid and desiccated for God knows how long. And it will no longer receive moisture. It is as hard as the thickest brick you can imagine. It is impenetrable, and therefore, that land that is impenetrable, that is arid, that is dense, that is thick, it will never sprout anything. It will never grow. It will receive nothing. The mind that is hardened, it is a mind that is incurious. It is resistant. There are some people who say, you know, I don't get it. I really don't get it, but I want to get it. Help me to get it. Right? There are those kind of people. And then there are other people that go, you know, I don't understand how you can believe that, but you know what? I don't want to. Not interested. Thank you. I will not read it. I will not consider it. I will not speak with you about it. Everybody, anybody ever had that experience? Not only do I not get you, but I really don't want to get you. You are not worth my time. That's a hardness of heart. Again, why are, why are we, why is Paul profiling the heart of futility, the mind of futility, if, if you're in Jesus, that that's been in your past. 
I'll tell you why. Because those habits of mine creep back in. They're echoes of a former way of thinking that if you're not careful, yeah, you can go there. Thomas Nagel, um, brilliant thinker, about atheist, actually broke ranks with many of the new atheists uh, several years ago and just said, you know, your whole conceptions are so fundamentally flawed and you won't admit it. But he was honest enough to say in an interview or in an essay, not only do I not believe in God, he said, I don't want to believe in a world that has a God. Because I don't want to live in a world like that in which I'm somehow in submission to this thing that is higher than me that I don't understand, that only discloses a part of himself. I don't want to. That's, look, I'm not dissing on him. I'm dunking on him. I'm just saying that's an example of a hardness of heart that leads to a darkened understanding that will not admit other light. And both that darkened in your understanding and that hardness of heart are downstream of this one thing, and that is an alienation from the life of God. That's what, that's what Thomas Nagel embodies. What is this resistance to and that understanding? I don't want to have communion with this God. I don't want to consider that possibility or order my life around it or even worse, submit my will, my affections, my thinking unto something that is grander than me that somehow has sovereignty over me. I don't want that. Now, I need to do another sidebar here. Is, is Paul intimating that if you are an atheist that refuses to admit in a world in which there is a God, that that will necessarily mean that you become wicked, wild, wanton, all those W words that mean bad? No. Again, Romans 2. What does Paul say about Gentiles? Some of them are in the embodiment of the law of God, and they've never heard about Yahweh. It's not an automatic thing. I reject God, and therefore I become a totally immoral person. That's not the case. There's a lot of people that you know that wouldn't darken the doorstep of this church if you paid them 50 bucks, but they're probably more moral than you on a lot of concerns. Paul is saying, though, that if you jettison the idea that there is one who is transcendent over all things, to whom we must give an account, then in one case, you're going to have to find some other reason for why you're moral. You have to find some other basis for why you do what you do that you think is for good. And you're going to have to ask yourself, is that reason good enough when every fiber in my being doesn't want to do what's right? That's one option. But Paul makes it more specific. One version of a life in which you are alienated from the life of God and therefore you're darkened your understanding because of your hardness of heart is what he says there in verse 19. They've become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Uh, there's a phrase that the, the reformers uh, liked to, to speak of in, in their writings and that was the idea of a conscience that's been seared like a stake. You know, you sear a, a steak, and that's meant to, you know, capture the juices, and, and it, therefore it's not, you know, then, you, then you, nothing can get out because that's, that's the way you want to eat a steak. You don't want your conscience to be like your steak. You don't want it to be seared. You don't want it to be hardened to the idea of good. And that's what a seared conscience can be. If you want a wonderful analogy of that, 
the younger son in Jesus' famous parable of the two sons. The first one says, you're dead to me, dad. Give me my inheritance. I'm out. He goes. He lives the wanton life, right? And then he goes, oh, what have I done? I'm eating with pigs, and I'm a Jew. That's a picture of it. That whole word, world, which, look, people go, oh, you Christians, you're so worried about being bad. This isn't just about morality. This is about folly. Because there are people that you know who have no shame about anything that they do that we might say is just wicked. They don't, they're, they're totally insensitive to it. They don't care. They like doing what is harmful, either to themselves or to others. That's, that's a world that is alienated, that, that becomes callous. It literally means, in the original language, the idea of your skin, it, it no longer feels pain. There is a, there is a hardness of heart there is a, a way of being, a way of thinking that is downstream from that alienation that leads you to not care what you do, to have no shame in it, and also to be totally unsatisfied with every pursuit that you go after. Greedy for impurity is just code word for saying you try to do this every single time thinking that it will bring you the ultimate delight, and it never does, and you keep going back. It's the definition of addiction. And this is a way of thinking. This is a futility of mind. This is the old self. And though to be a Christian is to believe that you have been delivered by that old self, it is also to recognize that you are continually haunted by that old way of thinking, an old habit of mind. This still crops up. I don't know whether any other reason why Paul would want to kind of do this extended profile on a futility of mind unless it was still a thing. In Christ, there is a decisive change. And the key to leaving that behind is what he says there in verse 20 and 21. That's not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him, were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. That phrase there, learned Christ, you don't ever find that phrase anywhere else in the New Testament. You've got to kind of fill in the gaps. What does Paul mean by learning Christ? I'll tell you what it means in part. It means that you believe that he is more than just a set of precepts. It is coming to an understanding of him that he is personal, that he is living that he is attentive, that he is for you. And he may show to you a, a sweet, delightful face and also a stern face, but always behind either face is love. That's learning Christ. Not just, okay, just the facts, dude. What do I got to do? That's not learning Christ. It's about knowing him and believing that he is for you like no one else is or ever will be. And that's what leads us into the mind that we're meant to find. And so to retrace our steps, what is that like? Look here in verse 22 and 24. You didn't learn Christ that way, but if you did, then you've learned that it is all about to putting off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. 
put off, put on. That's the language of I'm, putting this on, I'm taking this off and I'm putting this on. It really is like clothing. Some of you know what it is. You, you put on a, look, I first hand experience. She puts on a particular dress and she feels different. I put on a particular suit, and I feel different. It has some sort of effect. And, and Paul was talking about it. It's no different. That there is a putting off of one thing, and a putting on of a new thing, and, and, and you are changed. Now, let's be really clear about what put off the old self and put on the old self is not saying. Um, one of the, there are a lot of things to be sad about during the pandemic, but one of the funny things about the pandemic, you ever see that press conference where I don't know where they got the person, but it was a fake, it was a, a person that did not know sign language, but somehow did sign language there in real time, like during a public health meeting, and doing all of this, and everybody's thinking, oh, I guess it's getting across. They don't know a word. And everybody at home who's deaf is going, Who? what? It's, you don't have a clue. You're not doing it right. If you interpret to put off the old self and to put on the new self is Paul just saying, don't be bad. Just be good. You might as well have a fake deaf interpreter explaining Ephesians 4 for you. Slow down. Slow the tape. What does it mean to put off the old self? It is to put off a former manner of life that is corrupt through what? Deceitful desires. In other words, there are lies that you don't just believe and you don't just act on, but you love to believe them because they have come to serve you in some form or fashion. You wouldn't believe them if they didn't, in your mind, help. There are desires that we run to, that we love to believe, that <clears throat> we don't take a, a second thought about. And often we're not aware of it. But if we're honest enough with ourselves, those desires take us to places that are a dead end. Some people's desires, I'm going to make all the money I can, full stop, no qualification. I'm going to bed all the women I can, full stop, no qualification. Desires that you can pursue, that you go there to their logical conclusion, at some point you realize, I don't think this is what I thought it would be. To put off the old self has discovered the folly in some of those ways of thinking. And to put on the new self, it is not simply adopt a set of moral precepts. If you're watching closely in verse 24, what does it say? To put on the new self, what? Created after the likeness of God. Where have we heard that before? All the way at the beginning of the book. Genesis 1. Let us create them in our own image. Putting on the new self is not basically about a change of morality. It is about a change of identity. It is a rediscovery of identity from which a certain morality flows. It's another foundation. It's another place from which you understand yourself such that new priorities, new affections, new loves follow. To put on the new self is all about recapturing that sense of this is who I am. Remember what Francis de Sales said the last couple of weeks. Be who you are. And let us live for the honor of one who came for us and has loved us, and who has forgiven us, and reconciled us to the Father through his own blood. To put on the new self is to walk in that way, with that understanding. 
okay, wow, sounds great, sign me up, how? Like, there's the rub, right? And uh, see the dot, dot, dot? I did that for a purpose. Because I got to set that up, and I just did. So how do we put off the old self, full of corrupt desires, and put on the new self to walk in holiness and righteousness? Well, the way to that, the path to that, is to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. To be renewed. Verb tense really matters. Passive versus active voice really matters. Not go renew yourself, but to be renewed. To have something acted upon you. And welcome to the, 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 to the wonderful mystery and paradox of being in Jesus. How are we renewed? Here's where I land the plane. How are you to be renewed in the inner being of your mind, in the spirit of your minds, I'd, I'd, I'd distill it down to three things really quickly. One, mind your mind. Use your mind. Pray your mind. What do I mean by mind your mind? Um, newsflash, whatever you eat, your body becomes. <gasps> what? Cause effect? You're kidding. What you consume has an effect on the life that you have and the health that you have. Oh, why? It's just the way it is. Look, as with your body, so with your mind. We, we tend to think of our minds as just sort of these naturally neutral objects that nothing really impacts them. Um, teenagers, I'm getting up in your business. And adults, look, why is it that the, the rate of depression among adolescents like skyrocketed in a correlation with the advent of widespread use of cell phone use. Because of what you were giving your attention to, of what you were staring at all the time. And that is true of adults, and it is true of kids. Everything that we consider has an effect. How you and I respond to what happens in our life is never without thinking, never without the mind in play. And a lot of the times, we're not even aware that we are thinking or what we are thinking in real time, but we're thinking. The word of the day that, you know, I keep trotting out every few weeks is this word attention. Attention is a finite resource. Every day, you have this finite resource called attention about what you're going to give your attention to. You will never have an unlimited supply of attention in any given day. You will never be able to sustain attention over 20 hours of the day. It can't happen. And that's why you and I have to make choices every day. What will I give my attention to? There is a wonderful resource in the, re there's a wonderful essay in the resource doc this week under Sermon Resources by a guy named L.M. Sakasas. And he says, when it comes to technology, there are 42 questions you should always ask yourself before you ever take up any other technology. And he's not talking about technology wicked, technology bad, but technology shapes because of the nature of what it is to have an attention. So I encourage you to read it. I have to go back and read it too because I forget because I think this is just all fine and nothing's ever changing and I'll never be affected. Wrong. If attention matters then we have to choose about how we give our attention. That means we have to mind our mind. Now, of all places that I might appeal and illustrate that idea, I'm going to appeal to Bob Dylan. The time they are... I won't do that, sorry. <laughs> Wonderful interview with him back over in no, back, back last November. It's in the resource talk, too. I'm telling you, there's good stuff in there. 
Wonderful essay. People asking him questions, and he's very candid about what his life is like. He says, what's, they asked him, what is your favorite kind of music? And without batting an eye, sacred music. But listen to this candor. My problem is that I'm too relaxed, too laid back. Most of the time, I feel like a flat tire. <laughs> totally unmotivated, positively lifeless. I can fall asleep at any time during the day. It takes a lot of time to get me stimulated, and I'm an excessively sensitive person, which complicates things. I can be totally at ease one minute, and then for no reason whatsoever, I get restless and fidgety. Doesn't seem to be any middle ground. I'm going to stop with the impersonation. And then he talks about, given that way he is, what does he do with his mind? Listen. Two or three hours in front of the tube is a lot of binge watching for me. Too much time to be involved with the screen. Or maybe I'm just too old for it. I'm not a fan of package programs or news shows, so don't watch them. Here it comes. Ready? I never watch anything foul-smelling or evil, nothing disgusting, and something I can't print. I'm a religious person. I read the scriptures a lot. I meditate. I pray. I light candles in church. I believe in damnation and salvation as well as predestination, the five books of Moses, Pauline epistles, invocation to the saints, all of it. I think you'd feel welcome here. If any of you know him, see if he'll, never mind, I can't afford it. What's he doing? What's he talking about? He's talking about minding his mind. Some stuff he won't give his mind to and some stuff that he does. Because he knows how he is. Now if you think what I'm telling you is, bury your head in the sand. Don't ever, don't ever entertain controversy. Don't ever be curious about alternative points of view. If you think I'm saying that, you're not hearing me. I'm doing the de- you're not hearing me again. I'm asking you to pay attention to what happens to you when you give your mind to something for an extended period of time. What happens to you? You have to pay attention. You have to mind your mind. And while you're minding your mind, I want you to use your mind too. What does the psalmist say? Uh, Blessed is the man who does not um, uh, stand in the way of sinners, um, walk in the way of scoffers. Oh, gosh, that's terrible. My son memorized it recently, and I've totally fine. How does that part end? But he meditates on his, de- on, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it day and night. He gives his attention to what he thinks will nourish and flourish him. How do you use your mind? Let's go back to Marion Correctional Facility for just a second. The resource that the um, writers of the podcast appealed to to kind of help frame up their thinking about what was going on at Marion was this psychologist named Walter Mischel. You've never heard of him, but you have heard of the research that he did back in the 60s with marshmallows and kids. The whole thing about, okay, honey, I give you two marshmallows. If you just stare at this one marshmallow for 15 minutes, I'm going to leave the room, and I'm going to come back in 15 minutes, and if you didn't eat it, I'll give you a second one. And so and then you watch the kids, and like, some are like, Get that, man. I'm eating it. And then 15 minutes later, I'll take, I'll take two, yes. And everybody thought, and, and then they tracked those kids, you know, when they got to college and beyond. And, like, that moment then was a great predictor for what kind of life they were going to have later. It was all about delayed gratification. And there was a whole slew of thinking around that. And then later on, more experiments and more research. And even Walter Mitchell said, yeah, that's not, that's not really the point of the experiment. His argument is this, when it comes to change, everybody in this room and everybody in the world has beliefs and assumptions and expectations. A belief 
is something that you have reasons for, but you really can't prove it. It's kind of, that's your belief. Jesus is a belief. I can't prove him, but I have reasons to believe him. And from those beliefs come certain expectations. If that's true, then this is what's going to follow. Or that's what an assumption is, rather. And then, given my beliefs and my assumptions, I have certain expectations. I think this is what will be the outcome of certain things. He is saying all of us have beliefs, all of us have assumptions and expectations, and it is what those are that actually shapes the way we think in a given moment. Your beliefs, assumptions, and expectations tell your mind what to pay attention to in any given moment when you enter any room, and then your mind interprets that moment because of those things. If you think you are worthless, if you think you are horribly wicked and worth no one's attention, and you walk into a room, how do you interpret everybody in that room as people that probably won't like you? Your beliefs, your assumptions, and your expectations tell your mind how to think and then interpret everybody in the room, which is a lie. Rick stood up here during announcements and talked about discipleship and classes that you might take. And some of you think discipleship is all about, well, that's how I give another night of my week unto the church so that I score brownie points with God. I'm doing this again. No, that's, that's how you're reading it. It's about formation. You have beliefs and assumptions and expectations, and many of them are wrong. And in order for them to be changed and your understanding to move from darkness unto light and formation about your beliefs that you are beloved, that you are forgiven, that you are reconciled, that you are adopted, that you are united, that takes time. And those things have to be laid down. You have to use your mind in order to see the world, yourself, and others as he sees it. And that doesn't happen like this. That's what formation is. That's why we attend to it. It's not because, well, the room is open and we want to justify the, the air conditioning. It's because we believe the renewal of your mind depends on it. It can't be done apart from using your mind. And that's why Paul will say in Philippians 4, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, think about these things. If you believe that you're beloved, you will interpret your world differently. But the habit of mind that you came from and the habit of mind that you're to adopt, it takes time. And that's why I've got to end this last third part, because so far it feels like, wow, I'm already tired, mental gymnastics, uh, what's, what's that all about? Is this all about um, disciplines of mind? In part, but not entirely. Um, as I said before, we, we take this letter in chunks, but we have to take it as a whole too. And so I'm asking you to rewind the tape to when Andrew preached a few weeks ago from Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. And what does Paul do in that whole passage? Pray for you. To pray that you would be strengthened in your inner being to grasp the height, the depth, the breadth of the love of Christ. In other words, you can't do this, know this alone. You are called upon to use your mind and to mind your mind. But friends, you have to pray your mind. The Holy Spirit 
in too many places, and partly it's my fault, is kind of like Elf on the Shelf. It's there. It's been around for a while. I don't really know its origin story. It's true. It's there. What does it do? I have really no idea. Elf on a Shelf. What does he do? I have no idea. Look, this is what the Holy Spirit does to assist you in coming to have those beliefs, assumptions, and expectations transformed on the basis of what Jesus has done for you so that your mind will pay attention to things and interpret things properly. Unless you think I'm saying, all right, so I need you to give the next 18 days to this thing, and I need you to give these three days to this and all that. Uh, let me borrow a phrase from Henry Nouwen. He was a, a Catholic priest of the last century, and he speaks from the perspective of somebody that organizes churches and, and gives voice to what challenges we in church leadership do. And, and he puts it really brilliantly this way. He says, we, those who organize churches, we frequently find ourselves in fierce competition with people and institutions who offer something more exciting to do than they do. For instance, the AFC championship tonight. Yeah, never mind. But our task is the opposite of distraction. Our task is to help people concentrate on the real but often hidden event of God's active presence in their lives. And so the question that must guide all organizing activity in a parish is not how to keep people busy, but how to keep them from being so busy that they can no longer hear the voice of God who speaks in silence. I am not telling you to go give six nights a week. I am telling you to stop some of it. If God speaks in silence, which is its own version of prayer, not the only version of prayer, but its own version of prayer, then renewal happens there. You will work stuff out by saying to him, I don't get you. I don't understand it. I'm really struggling with this. I'm really angry at them. I'm really sorrowful at what I've done. I really want to curl up in a corner and do nothing. Please help me. Have mercy upon me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Stuff gets worked out. Renewal gets worked in, in that place. Because in this work, yeah, you're there. And you're part of it. But it's not unassisted. This is it. This is our invitation. This is our place. This is the dance. And it is a change from one state of mind to another. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this table, we need our mind changed again. Uh, we need um, the things that uh, preoccupy us right now and the things that we think are so important right now that in one scale of value are important but uh, not nearly as important as what you have done and what this table points us to. We ask that you would change our mind again about what is good and true and pleasing and what is the, the pillars of all life and hope and, and happiness. I pray as we come here, whatever is afflicting or encroaching upon all of our thoughts, that you would help us to see them in perspective, not to pretend they don't matter to you or to us, but to see them in view of what matters most and in what will endure and what will outlive even the greatest things that uh, tax us right now. We give you thanks that your patience is as bounteous as the sea, and your forgiveness is as real as the sun.
And now we ask that you would preserve us and help us to see you and change our mind again and as often as we need. In Jesus' name, amen.